The body is one beautiful, complex, interrelated system. And if we forget how all of the pieces fit together, we lose the ability to make the most well-informed choices. You know how you need to live because it's in you, that truth, that, that wisdom, that intuition is already in you, but you need to learn how to find it and learn how to trust it because we've taught ourselves that it's not valuable. We've taught ourselves, or we have been taught in the context of culture, um, that it's not real, it's not true. And I'm saying, actually, it's the most true thing around. Hi, my name is Rongan Chatterjee, GP, television presenter, and author of the best-selling books, The Stress Solution and The Four Pillar Plan. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome back to episode 102 of my Feel Better Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chatterjee and I am your host. Now I'm actually recording the intro to this podcast on Tuesday the 17th of March, the day before this podcast actually comes out on Wednesday. Now, clearly, at the moment, we are living in challenging times. Coronavirus has hit the world, people are scared, they're feeling anxious, and are really quite worried about the future. Over the past few days, I've been questioning whether to actually release this podcast conversation, um, and actually whether it's appropriate at the moment to put out conversations like this. But having heard from you on social media, and having reflected on it myself, I've decided as much as possible to keep to my Wednesday 1pm release schedule over the coming weeks and months to try and provide a sense of normality, but also to hopefully give you some interesting conversations to ponder each week, especially if you're spending a lot of time at home, isolated and away from loved ones. I know that this is no substitute for things returning back to normal as soon as possible, But nonetheless, I hope these conversations provide a little bit of respite and escapism. I am trying my very best to put together some coronavirus-specific content on the podcast, so stay tuned over the next few days, and hopefully I can release something very, very shortly. Now, today's conversation is all about seasons and what seasons mean when it comes to our health. It's actually a conversation I recorded with my really good mate, Dallas Hartwig, back in September last year when I was in LA, and I've been waiting to release it this week to coincide with the release of Dallas's fabulous new book, The Four Seasons Solution. Dallas asserts that instead of sticking to the same habits and behaviors year-round, we should change with the seasons, as our ancestors did. Dallas is the co-author of one of the most successful food books of the last decade, the whole 30. He's also a nutritionist and explains that how we eat, sleep, exercise, and connect to the world in January should be different to how we do those things in July. It makes sense, doesn't it? Intuitively, that sounds right. Yet how many of us consciously live by this and allow ourselves to feel differently and act differently according to the season? In his new book, The Four Season Solution, Dallas theorizes that our disconnection from our natural cycles is at the core of the modern day stress epidemic and most chronic disease. We wait before dawn, we stay up long after dusk, live with artificial lighting, heating, and aircon. 
We eat on seasonal food. We fly across the globe and use stimulants like sugar, caffeine, and alcohol, which further disrupts our circadian rhythms. And during our chats, Dallas shares some game-changing ideas that I think explain lots of the current debates in nutrition, fitness, and wellness, especially when it comes to exploring why different diets work for different people and at different times. This is an eye-opening conversation that will really make you reassess your lifestyle. I hope you enjoy listening. Now, before we get started, as always, I do need to give a quick shout out to some of the sponsors of today's show who are essential for me to put out weekly episodes like this one. Vivo Barefoot are a minimalist footwear company and they continue to support my podcast. Now, if you are a long-term listener of this podcast, you will know that I'm a huge fan of Vivo Barefoot shoes and have been wearing them for many years as of my entire family. They make super comfortable, minimalist shoes that you can basically live your entire life in. So many of you have already taken advantage of the special offer that Vivo have offered to my podcast listeners. And you often say that you're surprised with how comfortable these shoes actually feel. I have seen over and over again that they can be really beneficial for people with back, hip, knee pain, as well as general mobility. And I've been recommending them to many of my patients for years and have seen great benefits. They make shoes for all occasions, work, play, walking, going to the gym, and so much more. And they also make shoes for children as well as adults. For listeners of my show, they continue to offer a fantastic discount. If you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more, they are giving 20% off as a one-time code for all of my podcast listeners in the UK, US, and Australia. Importantly, they offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you can send them back for a full refund. You can get your 20% off code by going to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. Dallas, welcome to the Feel Better Live More podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for flying over from Salt Lake City just for the day. Appreciate that. Um, I think the ulterior motive for most of us, for both of us, was that we get to catch up. Yeah, for sure. This is like an opportunity to see a friend who lives a lot farther away than a couple hour flight. Yeah, so I'm super grateful for you doing that. And I've got to say, I love the new book. Like I literally am mesmerized with it. I think from the minute you start reading it, even the introduction has just got pearl after pearl after pearl in it. And I think there is so much just from reading the introduction, that there is value for people. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll just say that th- simply, thank you. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I, I think I resonate with it so much is you've taken a very holistic approach to health, a very rounded approach, mm-hmm. but you've also come up with a lot of fresh ideas that I've not really heard before. And I think, I think are really game-changing ideas, and I think they help to explain a lot of the, a lot of the debates and fights that are going on out there regarding health and wellness, I think you beautifully sort of showcase why many people may be right, but at different times. Right. For different reasons. Yeah. For different reasons. So look, it's, there's so much content in the book. It's kind of hard to know where to start. Um, but I guess you are probably best known for the book that you co-wrote, The Whole 30. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could sort of contrast, because many listeners of this podcast have uh, I'm assuming have tried the whole thirty. Right. Um, so, how does this fit in within the concepts of you having written the book, the whole thirty? Right. Um, 
I often describe so I have a, a book that I also co-wrote um, before the whole theory called It Starts with Food. That was my first first book, and that per, sort of provided the, the, the rational framework for how I think about food. Um, I describe this book, The Four Season Solution, as the conceptual prequel to It Starts with Food. So it's the biggest umbrella under which all of this other stuff nests. Uh, so the whole thirty is a sort of short term program designed as a personal experiment um, and contained to the realm of food. Um, this book is almost the kind of polar opposite of that, where it is highly personalized, highly conceptual, very broad, um, and takes the longest possible view over our entire lifetime and gives the reader tools to kind of think about living differently. Yeah, there's stuff to do right now and there's stuff to do next season and next year and next decade and all the way through. So, um, the whole 30 and these are, are very complementary, but on just really dramatically different timelines. So people who are fans of the whole 13 have used that to, you know, understand themselves a little bit better, understand how different food choices affect them. And hopefully they've started to implement the learnings from that into right. wider components of their life. This is a natural progression for them. It totally is. And, and you know, this was the this idea of putting all these pieces together in a in a con, sort of in a construct or a paradigm that kind of makes sense and sort of a coherent system has been in the back of my head for a long, long time and predates the whole thirty. Um, but when I started working with consulting clients, what I realized was that if I had to choose the most bang for the buck in implementing changes in a small corner of their life, I would choose to start with food, and hence the title of the first book, and then the outgrowth there, the the whole thirty program. But ultimately, um, this is the opportunity for people to take the energy and enthusiasm and sort of self-efficacy that, that often spontaneously gets generated by a short-term program like the Whole30 and to spin that into greater and greater momentum going forward um, because success breeds success. I think the thesis you're putting out there is going to be very, very new for a lot of people. I think a lot of these concepts people will literally not have thought about. And I think... The main theme that I feel is coming up for me that I want to start off talking to you about is this whole idea of, I guess, monotone in our lives. You know, the choices we make have to be the same on January the 1st as they do on August the 31st, right. whether it's the gym routine we do, whether it's our food choices. And you make a beautiful case of how we should be changing our habits and our behaviors through the seasons. Right. How much has your childhood, do you think, mm. you know, I guess, how much of that has sort of played into your thesis now as, a, as an adult? I mean, it's, it's central. You know, I, I grew up in a, a very unconventional way early in my childhood, which became more conventional, which I then had to unlearn later in my adulthood. Um, but when I was, before I was born and, and when I was born, my parents lived in a very small log cabin in rural Ontario, Canada. And we had no electricity and we had no running water. And uh, the light we had was candles or oil lamps. Um, we had one like propane lantern um, and that was our luxury, you know. Um, so we had 100 acres. We had a very large garden. Uh, we cut wood, you know, firewood off the land to heat the house, uh, you know, in the wintertime. But when you live like that, you can't help but be connected to the land, the earth, the seasons, the rhythms. And so my sleep cycle was very connected to what's going on at the seasons. And that varies dramatically time to time. Um, so that's always been, a, you know, always been a, a experience that was formative for me. 
And then later in childhood and adolescence and, you know, college years, I lived a fairly conventional life, but always remembered in the back, back of my brain that there was another way to do it. So as I started to kind of learn the like science and physiology and all that kind of stuff, the research around health and living well, I started to unlearn some of the convention and I started to kind of peel back the layers that I'd put on um, by becoming normal and started to become fairly abnormal again. When is it a case, like many of us, we grow up a certain way and then we try and break free from that when we get a bit older into adolescence and teenage years and in our 20s, we try and break free from that. But right. then you start, as you get a bit older, you see the wisdom in it. You start circling back to where you came from. Yeah. And I mean, I can't, I literally cannot imagine what that is like growing up with no running water. I can tell you. <laughs> it's not, on one hand, it's beautiful and simple and elegant and connected. On the other hand, it's a lot of work and it's clunky and things are slow moving. And part of the beauty is that everything is slow moving. There's a, there's a stillness in it because there has to be. It's not some sort of Zen monk approach. It is, this is, we have to do things slowly because if we want to take a bath and the water's cold, we have to put water on the fire to warm the water up to yeah. pour into the bathtub so you don't freeze. You know what? I, I say I don't know what that feels like and I should probably correct myself because, you know, it's great to see your face light up as you talk about these things, which is, I think, quite telling in itself. Right. And that makes me light up because I now think about my summers where, you know, my parents are Indian immigrants from, mm -hmm. from, from India, obviously, and every other summer we would all go to Calcutta in India for six weeks. And I was fascinated, like, um, in, in my dad's family house there, I remember we'd get off the, we'd get down at the airport, we'd go to the house. And I was so excited because I got to have my bucket shower. So I'd go in and I'd literally put cold water in a bucket, right. have a little, um, a cup of some sort to put it in and pour it over my head. And it was a novelty <laughs> for me. And I thought, right. oh, this is awesome. Right. And then I used to see people yeah, this is ridiculous because you would see people on the street who didn't have much mm -hmm. um, literally pumping water from wells. Mm -hmm. And actually, when we went to visit one of our, my relatives, that's what they had in the garden. Right. So I've not thought about this stuff in years, but I guess I had a, a slight insight into yeah, some of the things what, you're talking that's about. That's what we had. We had a, we had a pump on a, on a um, shallow hand-dug well that was many decades old, you know, before my parents lived there. Um, but yeah, we had a, we had a hand pump and it froze sometimes in the winter, which made it really difficult because you had to figure out how to thaw it out. Like there was, it was, it was a complicated, slow moving way of living, but there's, that's the blessing. That's the, that's the, um, the piece that gave me a place to go back to once I realized the way I was doing it wasn't working. And I guess that really is in many ways, one of the essences of your book is this idea of slowness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're here in Santa Monica in California having this conversation, you know, people are, I guess it's California, so people are sort of still got that chilled vibe, but people are busy and running around and, moving fast. and on their phones. And, you know, I guess when I'm here, I also move fast as yeah. I have been this week, because I guess the environment often will determine our behavior. Totally. We sort of respond to it, right? So do we, in, you know, the 21st century is one of the fundamental problems for our well-being, for our happiness. It's one of the fundamental problems for us to live better. The fact that we don't know how to slow down. For sure. For sure. And I think 
it's not so much a function of slowing down. I think we often think about slowing down as, okay, I'm moving too fast. I've got too much stuff going on. I'm overscheduled. I'm tired. I'm overstimulated. I need to just turn the switch off. And when I think about slowing down, I don't think about turning the switch off in a binary way, like a light switch, right? We're not, we're not electrical in that sense. Um, we're very cyclical and we're very subtle and we're very, there's lots of ebbs and flows. And, um, I think the mistake that we've made is thinking about ourselves as binary, like machines, like mechanical devices. And so the stillness and the slowness is really a function of letting the changes that would happen in our bodies over the course of, let's say, a year or even a 24-hour period. Those changes happen slowly, moment to moment to moment to moment in a graduated fashion. Um, so it feels slow if you appreciate the changes that are happening on a moment to moment basis or a day to day basis or a month to month basis. Um, so it's not a like, go, go, go crash, right? People will talk about, and this is me many years ago, um, and up until recent years, actually, where I was kind of proud of this idea that I never had trouble sleeping and I could just go get into bed and go to sleep rapidly and easily. And now I realize I'm just exhausted. So there's a, a, a function that's sort of a reframing of like, well, there's, if all of the transitions between our activities are very abrupt, um, then we're not so much slowing down as much as we're turning off. And that's more of a survival strategy and more of an adaptation to chronic stress and all sorts of negative things than it is some sort of banner to be waved to say, oh, look, I can go to sleep really good. I must be yeah. super healthy. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking about myself differently in that same way. I often think that um, one of the big problems that I see today, if I would argue as I have done before, that probably one of the number one problems I see in society today is the fact that downtime has been eroded out of our lives. It's been slowly, bit by bit, taken away from us to the point now where we don't have to sit in stillness. We never have to internally reflect. Right. We can numb ourselves with whatever we want, sugar, caffeine, uh, phones, and you know, primarily for sure. And I must read this quote that frankly is one of the best quotes I thought in the book. I think it really gets to the core of what you're trying to talk about here, which is in the absence of caffeine, sugar, alcohol, artificial lights, and all the common stimulants we use to get through life, you might start to begin to notice a certain rhythmicity to your own energy levels. And I, I was on the plane over reading this, uh -huh. um, and I, I had to just pause and reflect on that. And I think something so deeply resonates with me about that quote, and I'd really love people to sit with that because it is, you know, we are using these stimulants all the time to hide, to numb things, to hide from these inner emotions. Uh -huh. And we all do. This is not a criticism. I have, no, for sure, and I continue. I can to. write about that because I do it too. Yeah, for sure, and so. I think that says it all. I guess on that theme then, um, they often say that you write the book that you need to write for yourself. <laughs> I hate that you exposed me, but you're absolutely correct. I mean, that's that's been my experience. Um, you know, and this is the book that I both am giving myself advice in and also the book that I wish I would have read 10 or 20 yeah. years ago, you know. Um, so it's in, in some ways, it's an amalgamation of my own accumulated experience and wisdom, much of which is accumulated through my own personal struggles and failings and trials and pain. 
And some of which is a reminder of like, oh, these are the things I still need to work on. And towards the tail end of the book, I talk about that. I'm like, here are some of the things that I'm still myself personally grappling with that I don't have dialed in that I'm still working on. Um, And, you know, areas of expertise that I don't have that I choose not to give advice on because I'm like, I don't know what to do with this particular thing. Um, But yeah, I mean, this, this was a, this was a book born of personal experience um, over my entire lifetime, over four decades. Um, and some of which were kind of spectacular crash and burn scenarios, and some of which were sort of the slow ache of not being on the right track. Um, but all of it came out of kind of personal experience. Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, we, we've got to become really good friends over the last few years, which has been amazing. And, you know, we don't get to see each other as much as we would like. And I watch the things you post on Instagram, and mm-hmm. I've seen over the last few years. And there's such a real depth there. There's a real, it's very clear that actually you're on some journey and you're figuring stuff out and you're sharing some really wonderful insights as you figure that stuff out. Um, And so I have been so excited about when that book comes out, what is going to be in it. So I'm delighted that you actually have put your thoughts together, at least where they currently sit today, because as we know, thoughts evolve, right? Well, right. It's it's where they currently sat when I wrote the book, which was a few months ahead of when this podcast will air. So like, it's always evolving. It's always changing. For sure. But let's go into that. So the Four Seasons Solution. Okay, so what is it about these different seasons and why does that matter when we're thinking about our own behaviors? Well, that's a big question. Um, you know, I think about the seasons and, and the seasons are both literal seasons, right? In our, you know, our kind of four, four annual seasons, but they're also kind of archetypes. They're also symbols of smaller and larger timelines. So I write about seasons and I, and I use the labels of spring, summer, fall, and winter. Um, but those are also sort of symbols of certain time periods um, and in particular time periods of our lives. And so really what I'm offering people is a way to think about the natural intuitions and yearnings and ebbs and flows that are in us, whether or not we feel them or are in us, whether or not we acknowledge them and act on them, they are there. So this is kind of hearkening back to um, our evolutionary history that we evolved in a very dynamic world, in a world where... um, you know, the the length of day changed incrementally over the course of a year and it got longer and it got shorter and the temperatures changed and our food availability changed and the way we moved in response to our food availability and the temperatures changed and the way we slept changed and the way, you know, so all of these things were expanding and contracting over all of these timelines. And once we kind of got to the agricultural revolution and started to stabilize our food supply, largely through, you know, through agriculture, especially with grains, um, and then we started to stay in one place and we started the process of civilization and urbanization and things sort of started to get more concretized and less dynamic. We started to lose and we started to dishonor those natural rhythms. And that continued on through the industrial revolution where we basically mechanized things. So we sort of outsourced a lot of our physical movement. And so we, this whole process and then going farther with the technological and digital revolutions, we've progressively outsourced more and more of these things and fit them into neat and tidy boxes. So they were good for efficiency or they were good for productivity, um, but they weren't good for our biology. And that's the hypothesis embedded in this book is that um, our departure from those natural rhythms is at the core of the chronic stress epidemic, which as we know, and you've written and spoken about extensively, um, is at the core of virtually all chronic disease. Yeah. I mean, 
I really love this idea because fundamentally what you're talking about is us getting more in tune with ourselves. For sure. And listening to our bodies and not necessarily listening to the endless overflow of information we're being fed. But hold on a minute, just take a step back and listen. We, like the listeners will intuitively know this as I do, your sleep pattern, um, your desire to get up at a certain time mm-hmm. will be different in the summer mm-hmm. from the winter. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's getting light at 5 a.m., you naturally wake up, you, you actually want to get out of bed and go and embrace the day. In the depth of the British winter... Um, or the Canadian or winter. Or the Canadian winter where you <laughs> grew up, it's like, you know, the, the same time. So your job, let's say, starts at the same time. Mm-hmm. So you have to get up at the same time. Right. It's very different. And, and there's a different degree of difficulty at a certain part of the year from another. I think everyone recognizes that, but we don't do anything with that information. Right. And I guess... In some ways, it's hard to do something with that information for some people because if your job is set up in such a way that actually I need to be at work at 8 a.m. Right. So therefore, in the summer, that's no problem. But in the winter, now I'm sluggish and I'm hard. consuming more caffeine and sugar to yeah. get me through the day because I'm not in tune with my rhythm, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think the principle you're talking about here is mismatch, right? And And, you know, anyone who has... Um, read any of my books or explored the sort of paleo or ancestral health concepts, which are deeply rooted in evolutionary biology. Um, the idea there is that our biological systems, our genes, uh, the, the creatures that we are, are deeply informed by our evolutionary past. And what we have is a mismatch between our very modern environment, which has only been around for you know tiny fraction of human history, and the very ancient and elegant machines that we are. And so there's that, what we call an evolutionary mismatch. Well, there's also an environmental mismatch, right? And there's also sort of a contextual mismatch within different pieces. And so one of the things that I offer in the book is the opportunity to understand how some of those pieces could or should fit together. Because we talk, and there's all sorts of diet wars about what the right approach is on that. Um, But we forget that um, the body is one piece, this one system. And so if we if we try to study in a very scientific and controlled way, we try to study nutrition, let's say, and to try to figure out what the optimal human diet is, we are neglecting that there are all of these other factors that are going on for each of the individuals in each of those studies that we're not able to control for and that we're not taking into account. And so I would hypothesize that a dietary study done in the depth of winter would have a different outcome in terms of metabolic adaptations to whatever the intervention would be from the dietary study done with the same group of people in exactly the same way in the, in the heat of the summer. Because all of the circadian biology, all of our light-dark cycle, all of our movement, all of that interacts with our metabolism. So to be able to say in a very reductionist way, uh, this is the perfect human diet, and to ignore all of the rest of the context of our circadian rhythms, of our movement patterns, of our social interactions, um, is really to miss the mark and really to oversimplify. And I'll credit Michael Pollan with the idea of sort of nutritional reductionism or nutritionism, but that's what we're doing with all of these other lifestyle pieces. And so I'm seeking to reintegrate these pieces outside just of the isolated components. Yeah. Let's, Let's get into diet because I think it is one part, one of many parts in the book, but I think it's a super interesting one. And I think because it has become so toxic and divisive out there, much like everything else in the world. In fact, diet is surely just a mere reflection of everything else that is going on, frankly. I think I really want to dive deep here because, look, 
I think if I'm being completely honest, one of the reasons I like this book so much also is because it helps me further my understanding of various things I've been dancing around with in my head. I have had a particular viewpoint around foods, but then because I've seen tens of thousands of patients and I see what people tell me and I listen, the reality is I have seen people do well on a variety of different diets. That is the simple reality. And you go on social media and you think, actually, these people who are all writing their case for, let's say, one particular way of uh, eating, you know, I'm not going to... I'm not going to disregard their experience. They have changed their diet and they are feeling that way. Right. Okay, fine, I accept that. And someone else has done the complete polar opposite and is also feeling better. Mm-hmm. So, so which one is right? So which one is right? And there's got to be a, there's got to be something more to it than is immediately apparent. So I'll ask you, as a physician and as a very well um, read and, and uh, trained researcher, um, I'll ask you this. Have you seen people do well on uh, lower carbohydrate or ketogenic dietary approaches? Yes, I have. Have you seen people do well on a Mediterranean type diet? Absolutely. Have you seen people do well on a paleo type diet? Yeah. Have you seen people do well on a uh, plant-based vegan or vegetarian diet? Absolutely. Well, that seems to be impossible, right? Um, Because some of these things are almost diametrically opposed. And yet... It happens all the time, and it happens in individuals when clinicians work with individuals, and it happens in nutrition studies. Because all of these different approaches, all of these different styles, if you will, um, and I'll kind of think about them almost as um, sort of archetypes or or themes, um, they all work and they all provoke um, specific and often positive physiological adaptations to a different scenario, to a different program. So for most people in those studies, whatever they were doing before is fairly different than what they were assigned to in the study or whatever the recommendation their physician gave them and they did after. So there's a change there and the body's amazing at adaptation. So there is an adaptation to that situation, which very often is positive. Now, it's not always the same physiological markers that are positive in these different studies, but there often are physiological markers that are improve, that are improvements there in things like insulin resistance. So my hypothesis then is not so much that we need to get more granular with the individual genetics and epigenetics and lab testing and specific individual contexts. And perhaps we can zoom out and say, well, how in the world can all of these things all or mostly um, cause significant improvements in people's physiological markers and quality of life, and in some cases, longevity. Well, there has to be something else going on there. And what I started to kind of piece together and what started to notice was that the sort of the themes and the patterns hidden within these different dietary approaches started to look a lot like um, what seasonal variations would look like in diet as in our ancient past, food food availability would change dramatically at different times of the year. So we would have to eat different things and we would have to have those physiological adaptations to different nutritional um, stimuli, to different challenges to us. And um, whether you're talking about the improvements in insulin sensitivity that accompany a carbohydrate-restricted diet or even a ketogenic diet, an extremely carbohydrate-restricted diet, um, or you're talking about the improvements in vascular health or antioxidant capacity that goes along with a diet that's really rich in a wide variety of nutrient-dense plants, there's all of these different changes, all these different things that happen. So the hypothesis then is that uh, the kind of 
the extremes of these um, these 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 dogmas, these dietary approaches, um, they're both correct for a while in different contexts. Can I so, just say on that, that was the penny dropping moment for me when I read the book. Mm. And that, that I just thought, I genuinely thought that is just sheer brilliance because you explained how at different times of the year, we might thrive on a different diet. It's like a vegan diet might work brilliantly for someone at one part of the year and at a different part of the year actually they're, they're better on a lower carbohydrate type diet mm-hmm. you know i think there's such a deceptive simplicity i it's something i haven't really heard before right but it makes so much intuitive sense right, right. it makes intuitive sense because it's truth not my truth but like your biology's truth it's in us I didn't invent this. It's not an elegant, brilliant thing that I invented. I just observe what's been there all along. And the more we have sought to understand the body through science and gotten progressively more granular and more specific, we've also gotten more reductionist. And the body is one beautiful, complex, interrelated system. And if we forget how all of the pieces fit together, we lose the ability to make the most well-informed choices. And this is not me saying, I know how you should live on any given day of a 365-day year. This is me saying, you know how you need to live because it's in you, that truth, that, that wisdom, that intuition is already in you, but you need to learn how to find it and learn how to trust it because we've taught ourselves that it's not valuable. We've taught ourselves or we have been taught in the context of culture um, that it's not real, it's not true. And I'm saying, actually, it's the most true thing around. We know what we need for our own bodies, yet, to sort of pick up on that phrase of yours I quoted, caffeine, sugar, alcohol, Mm -hmm. too much artificial Mm -hmm. light in the the evenings, which we're definitely going to come to. When we have all these artificial stimuli in our lives, is it possible for us to tune into what our bodies really want? Or is literally the first step to find a bit of quiet time, right. to find a bit of time to internally reflect and actually listen to your body? Well, I guess the, the answer there is like, if you are, you know, at a really loud concert or on the subway or uh, in a bustling downtown of a very large city, how much, I mean, is that the place you go to meditate? Is that the place you go to find peace? Is that the place you go? No, if you, if you think about what we've done for most of human history to find insight and wisdom is we have withdrawn from the madness. We have drawn, withdrawn from the urban environments and the fast moving overstimulating environments to find quietude and stillness and peace and insight within ourselves and within kind of small um, kind of intellectual or religious communities. But you don't find that when you have a constant stream of stimulation coming in from the outside. And so there is this challenge in this paradox where it's easy to get caught up in the rat race. It's easy to get to, it's easy to self-medicate with all the stimulation. And I have absolutely done that myself for many, many years. Um, Partly because it's normal to, I mean, we are, and as you know, and as you've talked about before, we're hardwired to respond to those stimulations. So we have this challenge of, you know, the always on world with all of its glitz and glam and the Las Vegas strip and, you know, all of this stuff all the time in our, in our phones and at the supermarket and everywhere. And it's extremely difficult to 
balance and mitigate some of those natural drives and natural attractions to those things because they're there for a reason, but now they are distorted and used against us in a commercial sense. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that there's no way to sense what is deeply hidden in us. And I don't mean hidden in a, you know, it's not, it's not something that we are supposed to kind of um, spend a lot of time seeking, um, but it's hidden in the sense that we are not, used to listening to it um, because we have we're given all these prescriptions right the government tells us how we're supposed to eat or how we're supposed to put our plate together and we teach children this in elementary school okay, this is how you're supposed to eat instead of saying what which is what i do with my son who's now six um, i teach him how does it feel do you do you want more food are you already feeling satisfied and to get and to redirect him to notice what he's feeling in his own body because the government doesn't know how much he should eat at any given meal. Yeah. He knows. So I'm t- really trying to kind of play up those pieces and foods that kind of an, an easy one. But um, if we don't start that process with our children and validate their own experience by the time they're adults like you and I, um, they've largely lost touch with that. And then we have to do the hard or perhaps even harder work of going back and finding that which, which was lost a long time ago. You know, that, you know, that points you just brought up is you know I, I really take my role as a father super seriously it's one of the most important roles in my sure. life i'm always trying to model the right behavior but i guess i don't really tune into that aspect with my kids right and i think certainly one of them i think probably does overeat and you overeats healthy food right, right. okay so yeah you know, I'm daddy feels happy because at least it's healthy. But no, actually, right. a, a what does healthy mean anyway? Sure. But also, I can see a problem in this pattern right. if if I don't start, or if as a family we don't start doing something a bit differently. And I think that could, I think your suggestion is brilliant. You know, start to ask them. Yeah, you want more, but have you thought about how you feel? You know, right. how do you feel when you have more? And I think, I think that is something frankly, kids, but we can benefit from, you know, how much, of, how much of overeating and, and, and it is emotional eating anyway? I would argue a lot of it, right? Yeah. So there's this combination, this interface between the intrinsic stimulation, right? The sugar and salt and fat and the umami flavor, like all of these, and even texture, things like crunchy things, um, those draw to us. And so there is this sort of innate biological piece, but there's a psychological and emotional component to it too. And they interconnect, right? They're not one and the other separate things. They're all interrelated. So you could perhaps argue that emotional eating is really a biological process or the other way around or both. They're all. Yeah. It's, it's, It's got me thinking. It's got me thinking about my own behaviors and the way I parent. And I think I'm going to, I'm going to sit with that. Um, well, I, I would I would go so far as to say that you know that you would probably benefit from the same simple experience of like, what do I actually need? Yeah. Here? What do I what do I want? Am I eating because there's food on my plate? Am I taking more because it's sweet and salty and the perfect mix of everything, and I just like how it tastes? Um, and really slowing down is the simplest way to do that. Um, not just to you know, get better salivary secretion and just, you know, to chew more thoroughly. So you digest food and extract more nutrition from it. You can make all of those very kind of rational points, but you can also then think about the actual experience of eating and the connection. And one of the things that I've observed with my international travel, and of course you see this all over Europe, is 
people in Europe spend a great deal more time in communal eating than we do here in the States. Yeah. And by a large, by a, a really stark change, a really, a really sh um, sharp difference there. And um, I read an interesting research paper a while ago that talked about the trust that gets built between people eating the same food. So if you go to a restaurant and you order fish and I order steak, it's a different response in each of us in terms of the way we perceive each other than if we go to a restaurant and we both order steak or if you come to my house and we cook steak together. So it's it's um, it's a, such an influential experience to us as humans because eating is a bonding, trust-building, connective experience, and we've subtracted that out. So it's not just tell yourself to chew your food to slow down. It is put yourself in an environment, design your environment such that your response to that particular behavior, in this case eating, is naturally more like your biological or um, evolutionary history such that you can just do what comes naturally. And when you and I sit down, it takes us three hours because we're talking so much. Yeah. So we don't have to think to slow down. It just happens because of the context. So, so much about this book is also about changing the environment that you live in to set yourself up for success. And that happens by assessing what's going on, looking at what's working and not working, and then making some incremental changes. So let's say um, you're listening to this podcast, someone's listening, and they're thinking, okay, I get that. You know, I accept the case you're putting forwards. At the moment, in my house, mm -hmm. I have a family, I have kids. Um, it's pretty chaotic around mealtime. We're rushing around, and then mm -hmm. I'm sort of screaming at everyone to get to the table to eat. Um, and, you know, I finally get everyone together, serve it in a rush because I'm sort of frazzled because I've got other things to do. We sit down, you know, we try and get it done sort of quickly where mm -hmm. someone's trying to get up and we're trying to say, hey, you've got to sit down. Someone's on their phone at the table. Um, if that is someone's life, mm -hmm. and I know for a fact, particularly having done Doctor in the House for two seasons, when I actually went into people's homes and mm -hmm. saw how people are eating, I know this is happening all, sure. all up and down. This frankly, is reality. For it's sure. reality for many people. Yeah. And none of us have been judgmental here, neither you mm. nor me, and are criticizing that. But what suggestions might you offer to a family like that mm -hmm. who are thinking, okay, cool, how do I set up my environment so that we can eat in a more mindful and communal way? Right. I mean, this is, this is both a simple answer and a difficult answer. And the simple part of it is you incrementally make changes over long periods of time to move your family unit, to move your environment in the direction of a healthier, slower, more mindful, more present experience, more connective experience. And you mentioned, you know, um, someone's on their phone, um, which I'm guilty of a lot of the time. Um, but those are, those are by definition, disconnective experiences. So the simple part of it is slowly make changes in terms of involving your kids in cooking. It is uh, making a rule that there's no electronic devices at the table. It is um, making prioritizing or, or, or prioritizing um, kind of cooking and eating together, not just the eating together, but the cooking together, yeah. um, because that's part of the process, right? And this is, you know, Michael Pollan wrote a beautiful book called Cooked about that, um, because it is a, an underappreciated aspect. So involving, you know, involving more family members in the, the act of getting food from farmer's market or supermarket to home to stove 
to table and because it's starting to kind of put some of those pieces together. And on one hand, that might sound like, oh, that's actually taking more time and adding more work and more complexity. But ultimately that then um, that experience can become a family bonding experience. Yeah. And so instead of going to the arcade or going to the theater or going to somewhere else that would might be kind of a, a more um, typical um, family activities do, you can start to integrate across all of these different domains of living, like a farmer's market trip, at least with my son now who's six, is so much fun. Yeah. So then we can talk about, you know, where the food comes from. We can meet the farmer who actually grew the food um, or or raised it. And then you can start to connect the dots because so much of what we do is so disconnected and so fragmented. They're really what I'm talking about is actually redesigning the whole system. Yeah. And that's the simple part. The difficult part is the reality, which is those changes happen slowly. If I was to make a sweeping change to um, the way the household runs like that, there would be all sorts of uproar. So this is not the quick, hard, aggressive change. This is start to change the way you think about living well in the modern world and implement those changes over periods of time because the view ta- the book takes the view not just of four seasons of one year and not just of four seasons of two or three consecutive years but those same four seasons which become patterns and symbols and archetypes year upon year literally for the rest of your life and you start to notice some of those same yeah. patterns so it is a an upward spiral where each cycle builds on the last and um, it's not the done yeah. you fixed you know, as you describe that, I think I think about my own family life and I think about how we do dinners. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, in the winters, the dinners are completely different. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily mean what we're eating, although I think having read your book, I'm I'm sort of certainly convinced more and more that they should be different in terms of what we eat, mm-hmm. but how we eat, it's very different. So we've got like a high kitchen bar sort of area in the kitchen, mm-hmm. which is right next to the garden. So there's a lot of light in mm-hmm. there. And where the dining table is, it's actually quite dark. So I, I sort of don't like spending much time there. So in the summer, when it's light, we're often eating on these bar stools. But the reality is when we do that, you know, it's easy to get off. It's easy to sort of, I don't know, it doesn't feel as though we're quite confined in around together. And often we'll get up in the middle, we'll sort of nip out to the garden. It's Look, we've always had a rule, no devices at the table. Okay, yeah. So that's not hard for us because that's always been the case. I recognize for some people even taking that step, especially if yeah. you have children. It'll be a riot. Yeah, there could be a riot. Yeah. And just an added point there is <laughs> if you want your kids to go off devices, look in the mirror first for because sure. typically they will just mimic our own behavior. Sure. Uh, that's probably my biggest learning as a parent. But in the winter, well, as soon as it gets darker we go to the dining table and I take a real effort to put candles out. Mm, I nice. love it. It's dark. Yeah. So I embrace the darkness and mm-hmm. put candles out. We set a table. We sit around so we're all connected with each other. Yeah. And I think we just connect in a and different how, way. How does it feel? What's the feeling there? The feeling is... Because you've already honored that deep yearning to do it differently and to have more connection. It, it feels cozy. Yeah. It feels... I don't know. You feel like a fuzzy feeling inside. Mm-hmm. Um, we... You know, there's this, yeah, it's it's interesting. We, I think we we talk more to each other. Mm. We're not distracted by the things. It almost, the dark and then the candles on the table mm-hmm. almost encloses us mm-hmm. and kind of keeps us there. So we often, instead of finishing and then rushing off, 
we're often sitting there for 10, 15 uh-huh. minutes afterwards chatting, uh-huh. which is just a wonderful connective experience. And that's just one insight from my own life I can share to, to, to demonstrate that these are natural things that when you tune in happen. Right. I also feel what I did last winter, I was taking baths every night. I mean, this is not something I've typically done in my right. life, but I would literally, once the kids were in bed, I would like, I'm not a big TV person. I'm, you know, certainly for the last five, six years, I barely watch anything. Yeah. Once the kids are in bed, I'd literally run the bath, put a candle on, mm-hmm. and I sit there and I feel as though, whereas in the summer, you know, I might go for a walk, I want to get outside, I want to go yeah. in the garden and mess yeah. around, right? But what, this is the beauty of your book, I think you've articulated what many of us actually ordinarily do, but we don't apply it. But you don't, but th- I'm, I'm, I'm like dying to say a bunch but of stuff please. right now. It's fascinating because what you just described was the way I would recommend people make shifts in their everyday life in the wintertime. Because what you're describing is naturally, spontaneously, intuitively making changes in a way that is very contractive. The world gets smaller, literally like even when the the light is dimmer, you can't see as far, like your, your experience gets smaller. So the winter experience is of contraction. The world gets smaller into sort of physically, it gets smaller socially because you pull the most important people to you closer and you connect more meaningfully sitting across the table or whatever the experience is. Um, which is contrasted with the summer, which is looking out and looking at stimulation and having, you know, neighborhood parties and going on road trips and seeing old friends and family and doing all of this stuff out there. But really that winter experience is of coming home and settling and having the world comfortably and restoratively shrink back down to a very small size. And you've already done that just because it's in you. You've already started to honor some of those things that are in you. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And that's a great a great natural example of some of the patterns that are in us that we've largely trained out, um, but that I'm arguing should be re-implemented. And the thing that you already said is that it feels good. It's warm, fuzzy. It's not, I'm forcing myself to do this thing because someone told me it was good for me. You did it intuitively, spontaneously, and it feels good in a really deep way. And so the way I write about the experience of fall going into the winter, because that's sort of the directional change, right? So spring and summer as patterns are expansive, they are dopamine-driven and adrenaline-driven and stimulation and novelty and stress and risk and reward and success and all of this stuff. And there's a pivot that has to take place there at the end of summer where you make the shift into slowing down, coming home, resting more, reconnecting, reassessing, distilling down the ideas and people and resources that you've gathered out there in the world. And this is true on a a daily basis, right? You think about the pattern of your day. You start with a very small world, you know, your bedroom. You wake up, you turn the lights on, things get bigger and bigger. You go out, you do the thing. So your sort of spring of anticipation and then your stress of summer, the midday thing, you go to work, you go to school, and then you come home. And then there's that change of coming home and slowing down. That's the fall kind of experience. And that then goes, that continues to contract and settle and become more reconnected as you go into the winter or the darkness. and. So, sorry, the patterns are same. Yeah. the same across all these different timelines. It's, it's almost a fractal pattern of like a day and a year and a lifetime because the same pattern is true. You know, um, you and I are about the same age, 
and we are approaching the fall of our lives. And so we have that same directional change and reassessment and thinking about, and I know this, I know you personally will have to know that we are thinking about, we are looking back on our previous decades and said, what have we done <laughs> kind of thing in a lot of cases in both good and bad ways. Um, but the experience of saying, okay, I don't want to expand forever in the terms, yeah. in terms of work and success and recognition and just plain like beating yourself to death. It is what matters, who matters, what do I want to leave behind? And so some of these thoughts of like legacy and roots and where am I from and who am I? You made an allusion to that earlier. Um, I'm looking forward to that conversation with you um, over dinner, but those are the things that change. And so long-winded way of saying what you already have started to do in the wintertime is the perfect natural thing to do in terms of, and it's a great example of what you can do as a family. Your, your earlier question was, how do people make changes in like the crazy, you know, the, the crazy lives? And you've got a busy schedule, you've got a busy family, and you have found a way to change the way the dynamics of your family structure work to prioritize those connective experiences in particular in the wintertime. So I'm not arguing that you should do that year round. I'm arguing that's the thing you should do episodically. That's the thing you should do during the winter. It doesn't feel right in the summer. It doesn't feel right in the summer. Yeah. It would feel really strange to pull the blinds yeah. and light candles when it's still light outside and eat dinner in this really contained space. I the kids love the candles as yeah. well. And, you know, that may sound quite trivial and throwaway, but it absolutely engages them For in sure. the process. For sure. You know, my, my son now lights the candles. Yeah. And I know someone will post that, you know, you know your eight-year-old son or your nine-year-old son shouldn't be lighting candles. My six-year-old son lights the candles. Great, so I'm delighted soon. to hear that because, <laughs> you know, with these rules we yeah. come up, this health and safety stuff, which has value. I am for saying sure. that, right? Disclosure. For You're a doctor. You have to say that. I am not recommending people go and do this. But we have yeah. been teaching him and we've been supervising him. And now I feel, yeah, he's okay. Yeah. I will watch him while he does sure. it. But it's... Um, but, it's, it, but what you're teaching him, this is kind of maybe getting off topic, but what you're teaching him is how the world works and what the consequences are. And my six-year-old son has a small, not too sharp pocket knife that he uses carefully for very specific tasks, highly supervised. Um, because we have also, you know, this is kind of more of a parenting conversation, I guess, but we've taught kids um, that the world is a very, very scary place and they're not allowed to use any of the dangerous things until yeah. they're much older. And whether it is the way that we behave with knives or fire or our own bodies, we learn or we, we are not taught how to use them responsibly and how to maneuver through the adult world. And so we get to the adult world and all hell breaks loose. Yeah. I mean, you say we're going off topic. I think we're bang on topic. You effectively... We're firstly teaching them how the world works, right? What your book is doing and what your philosophy is doing is teaching us what we've always known, that there are seasons, right? right? This is how the world works. Right. There are seasons. Let's stop trying to live the same life we do in summer as we do in winter. Right. And the, the one that, that is not how the world works. Exactly. Yeah. So it is bang on topic because we're talking about connection. We're talking about being in tune with ourselves. I, I'm thinking about Christmas. Mm-hmm. In many ways, like the holiday season, as, as, as you guys call it over here, is it's almost in the wrong season, right? Well, yes and no. Okay. Let me, t let me take a crack at that. I think what you're saying, what I think what you're getting at is the madness of holiday parties and buying gifts 
and rushing around and the stress of having to spend money that you might not really have to buy gifts that people might not really appreciate out of obligation because that's what everyone's doing is way off track. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, exactly what I'm getting okay. at. That, I just that, sure, that, that, that aspect, aspect sure I was assuming. Fair. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the holiday season, um, which could also be interpreted as recognizing what's important to us, recognizing the gifts that we have, being grateful for the gifts that we have. I mean, here in the you know, here in North America, we have Thanksgiving. Um, so we have this experience of coming together with the people we care about the most to at least conceptually express gratitude, thanks for what we have. And this is, it's a harvest celebration, right? Now it's become something totally different, especially with here in the States with Black Friday, the biggest shopping day of the year, the day after. So it's become very bastardized and distorted, but the underlying principles of recognizing who is most important in your life and, and drawing them close into a very intimate space, usually your home to share the same food with them and have that connective trust building experience could not more be bang on with a winter kind of experience or an end of fall kind of experience. We've just turned it into something totally different in the modern world. So in the same way as we have distorted the sugar cravings that would be totally biologically normal in the late summer when we are tired and underslept because we've had many consecutive long days and short nights and we've been stressed from all of that movement and sleep restriction during the summertime it would be normal to have sugar cravings that would match the availability of seasonal fruit in the late summer and early fall that's a biologically normal thing but we've bent that and with that same chronic sleep restriction we then create a situation and then we supply processed sugar everywhere all the time and it's no wonder that people have difficulty managing their sugar cravings in that context so ultimately, um, I would argue that the holiday season is spot on if we remember what it's about and we don't accept the modern, civilized, commercialized version of that. Because I think that sitting down with the people that matter to you most and sharing food and expressing gratitude and connecting is one of the most beautiful and meaningful experiences we could ever have as humans. So what could be better to do yeah. then? It's about, I guess, it's keeping the winter elements off it and taking away the summer Absolutely. elements out of it. Yeah. So I think, so to, to, to contrast that, something like New Year's resolutions, which is to abruptly put something into action, does not belong on January 1st. The concept of starting a new program, of doing something new, it's an exercise program, it's a diet, it's a, some commitment to yourself has no conceptual connection to the first day of the calendar year. What it has connection to is the energetic and hormonal and physiological underpinnings, the motivational pieces that would tend to go along with the neurotransmitter dopamine of motivation and anticipation and energy. And it would dopamine draws us towards things. Well, that's a spring experience. Yeah, man. It just So New Year's resolutions should happen in the spring. And it's the perfect time. Um, it's the time when we go out and we do spring cleaning in the garage and we start a garden and all that. But we should bump that January 1st and we should think about things in the deep winter and enact them early in the spring. And it, it makes so much sense. Yeah, I didn't make this up. This is the way it's always been. You know, that's the beautiful thing about this. You've Sorry, articulated... I got all excited about this. Well, good, because <laughs> you should be, because it's great. And it, you've articulated yeah. something that is so 
it's like anything. Once you know it, you can't right. unknow it, right? right? And that's, I think there'll be penny dropping moments all throughout this book when people read it because it just makes intuitive sense. And right. I've, I've really not thought about that January resolution. It's very arbitrary. Concept. But I tell you what, what, what I have thought about before, and this is in my early days as a GP, um, a lot of patients were coming in, they were on antidepressants. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the pros and cons of antidepressants is a completely separate conversation. This is not the point in me bringing this up. The point in me bringing this up is I would be helping various patients with things in their lifestyle to help improve their moods. Mm-hmm. And you know, whether it's their relationships, their diets, their movement patterns, their sleep hygiene, all the kind of things that we, we both know play a huge role in our mental health. And I can remember some cases where, and again, I didn't know any of this stuff back then, but I always try to follow my intuition with patients mm-hmm. as much as I could. And I remember some patients who, like in January uh, or the end of January, they'd be saying, hey, I felt good for a few weeks now. I mm-hmm. want to start tapering off and coming down. Mm-hmm. And I always used to, I always used to be a bit resistant. Now, of course, I would never tell someone not to do that if they felt ready. Right. But I said, hey, look, you know what? You've been up and down with this for a few years now. In six weeks or, you know, in, in just under two months, it's going to be spring. Mm-hmm. In my view, I think it might be better for you just to just stay where you are at the moment. Keep figuring out the lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. Keep just taking your time on that. Why don't you come back and see me in the middle of March? And we'll talk about how we can taper down going into spring. Mm-hmm. And I've not thought about this in years, but I used to do that because right. it felt wrong. Like if I'm getting cold walking in, I've got my raincoat on. I, I just felt, do you really want to start <laughs> taking on this challenge right. now? Right. Like, do you not want to do it when the days are getting a bit brighter? So I guess that is tapping in exactly to what you're right. talking about. Well, and there's also the component too. And, and you know, um, seasonal affective disorder is a real thing. And also, I will argue... There is a natural seasonal downturn in the energy, happiness sort of thing. And I will argue that that's biologically normal. It is a really mild version of sickness behavior, right? Mm-hmm. When we have, uh, you know, some sort of um, major illness, infection, systemic inflammation, or make kind of major injury, um, the natural response is to conserve energy, to kind of hole up, you know, physically and socially, um, to kind of not expose yourself to such risky, deep, potentially dangerous situations to rest and heal and heal, not just in a, you know, structural injury or inflammatory injury sense, but to heal from the sort of assault of being out there all the time. And that's what we do every night when we come home and sleep. And I'll argue that there is a, albeit mild effect in the winter where, um, we have this culture of being obsessed with being happy and energetic and outgoing and motivated all the time. And I don't think that's actually normal across the entire year. I think that is something that we should feel a ton of in the spring and summer and a little bit less of in the fall and somewhat more yeah. some, or somewhat less of in, in the winter. So not to dismiss seasonal affective disorder and, and uh, depression, but I think that sort of from a conceptual commentary, it's okay to not be really energetic and really motivated to go out and kind of yeah. tear things apart in the dead of winter because that's the time that we should be sleeping a ton, ton and resting and restoring and reconnecting with ourselves, with our partners, with our family, with our closest, most kind of um, our, our anchor connections. I read about the book, right in the book about anchors. And I think anchors are one of the ways that we remind ourselves 
where we belong and kind of what some of these key behaviors are because we can get spun out with wild oscillations and you know experimenting yeah. with all sorts of different things um but that experience of settling and being home and deeply nourishing and restoring ourselves physically nutritionally psychologically emotionally spiritually all of these things have an up and down cycle as well and i think that we sometimes mistake a lack of motivation, a lack of energy in the wintertime for something pathological when really it's just a natural ebb and flow of our own cycle. Yeah, absolutely. I want to go back. I just want to make sure that I'm not, people don't feel like I'm dismissing their, their depression. Yeah, um, which and is absolutely. Not, which is you, not what I'm intending. I think you made that super clear. And I think just having that awareness, I think of that being a possibility, mm -hmm. I think it's super helpful for yeah. people and might help someone listening to this. They might realize that, yeah, it, it is worse in the winter, actually. Yeah. And or someone who doesn't have a diagnosis may mm -hmm. be like, hey, yeah, maybe this is how I'm meant to feel at this yeah. time of year. Well, and we have a we have a mismatch, right? So um, you know, there's mismatches all over the place. And the more you see these different layers and these different time frames contrasted with the way we're expected to live in the modern world, the more problems we identify. So in the kind of natural world, it wouldn't actually be a problem to have a natural downturn in mood to sleep more to um, just not be super motivated to do stuff, it would be a restorative time that over the course of weeks and months through the winter would leave you coming into the spring feeling a ton better, feeling restored, almost like the same as a, the equivalent of a good night's sleep when you feel really good and you wake up spontaneously early in the morning. It's that same feeling. And um, the problem is that we yearn for that deep winter restoration but because of work schedules and artificial light and financial stress and all these other things, all these other external modern factors, we don't allow ourselves to have that experience. So then we don't emerge into the spring feeling good. We yeah. emerge into the spring still feeling mildly depressed. And that continues year round instead of it being a more of a cyclical and natural pattern. Yeah, for sure. I guess... I guess my I guess my argument embedded in there is that some of those things do naturally resolve if we do these seasonally appropriate behaviors yeah. that we don't currently allow ourselves to do. And I guess I would I would think trying to expand this out in my head, do athletes, do some athletes naturally get this? Like I guess they've got competing seasons. Mm -hmm. They've got some, you know, these guys and off seasons. And off season, right? So it's built into mm -hmm. the way they eat, the way mm -hmm. they train, they'll do different kinds of activities. Yeah in the winter to prepare themselves for summer competing season, you know, mm -hmm. where they can push harder, let's say. And it's, right. it's kind of, it's all there, right? It's all, it's all out there in front of us. If we can just hear it, right. Right? we can hear, you know, pay attention to, to, to those signals. Just taking a quick break in today's conversation to give a shout out to the sponsors of today's show. Athletic Greens continue their support of my podcast. To be really clear, I absolutely prefer that people get all of their nutrition from foods. But for some of us, this is not always possible. Athletic Greens is one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. So if you are looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer 
where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. I want to go back to what you said about nutrition studies. I think, you know, I've had Sachin Panda on the, on the podcast mm-hmm. before and his, his work is superb at talking about, you know, how when we eat might be, you know, as important, mm-hmm. certainly significantly important. I think yeah. maybe as important as what we eat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a very good case now that I've spoken about on this podcast before about how we eat mm-hmm. might be as important as what we eat. You know, you talk about the French paradox, for example, right. and, you know, I, I absolutely, the way I view life now and the way I view stress, I think having a two-hour lunch break where you sit down and chill out and close off, I think that allows you probably to eat more uh in inverted commas, unhealthy foods, right. you know? And I agree with you. We have got so reductionist about health. It is untrue. Nutrition is the prime example of that, right. how we fight viciously, whether it's fat or carbs. And I'm bored of the argument, frankly, and I, I don't engage so in it bored. because I think they're missing a big picture. So you made the case that um, a nutrition study done in the winter might have not might, will probably have a different outcome and impact than a nutrition study done in the summer. Mm-hmm. That is brand new information for many, many people, mm-hmm. okay? And many, many researchers, I, I would imagine. Well, basically, I'm basically pointing out a confounding factor that is almost never controlled for. Exactly. And that's what, exactly. There are many confounding factors yeah. out there that, that people recognize and say, this is the limitation of the study. Mm-hmm. This is the limitation of this study. But we never hear the limitation being this was done in the winter. Right. And I think just to get really specific... You made the case, I think, um, and I read the book on a on a plane, half the book on a plane, so I don't <laughs> want to misquote you, but that we're living in like an endless summer. Yeah. And our dietary choices are not really in tune. Well, we're also eat we're basically eating as if it's summer 12 months a year. Right. And how different diets might do better at different parts of the year. So mm-hmm. We, we sort of outlined the overall philosophy. I wonder if we could dive right in and say, well, look, so to be quite specific, then what does a summer diet or what might a summer mm-hmm. diet look like for someone as opposed to a winter diet? Right. Well, let me zoom out and then I'll zoom back in. Sure. Um, because not only are we eating like it's what I call chronic summer, you know, summer on and on. And, and the, the, the choice of chronic there is to highlight the link between chronic summer behavior and chronic disease. Because that, I think, is is a really underappreciated linkage. Um, but chronic summer would entail a lifestyle that is uh, long days, so light exposure for many hours a day with a relatively short amount of darkness, which is what we get in the summertime. Um, it would entail a lot of movement um, that's either kind of you know general movement or an excessive focus on what we call cardiovascular exercise, um, whether it's running or cycling or triathlons or whatever. Um, with a relative lack of higher intensity and strength-based training. Um, so if you look at sort of, and this is, this is a, a, a generalization for sure. Um, and chronic summer would also entail, um, 
a lot of very stimulating and very fractured, fragmented, distracting social connections. So social media would be a great example of a summer type social connection where it is relatively superficial, relatively filtered and controlled, but we can have it with dozens or hundreds or thousands of people. So it's very much a, that's sort of the digitized version of going on a road trip and meeting a ton of people, um, but only few of which would ever become long-term serious close friends. Um, but then to the summer dietary piece of it, um, it tends to be, so the relationship between um, food choice and season becomes really important um, because in for virtually all of our evolutionary history, different foods were available at different times of year. And so we developed parallel patterns of changing circadian rhythms at certain times of year with different food availability. And we obviously know that in the spring and summer and fall, we have a lot more plant matter, a lot more fruits and vegetables um, available. And that's of course progresses throughout that time. Um, and in the winter, there's a lot less of that available fresh. Now in the globalized world, that's changed radically. Um, but for virtually all of our evolutionary history, the summer was a time for lots of carbohydrate rich fruits and vegetables. And so um, it tends to be heavier on the carbohydrate, but to your earlier point, not carbohydrate as a problematic macronutrient, carbohydrate as a natural constituent of highly nutritious whole foods. So then um, just as a, as a product of sort of displacement, there's also a little bit less fat in the summer type diet. So this is the last several decades of low fat recommendations where we skewed ourselves into a summer kind of um, paradigm of low fat foods, lots of carbohydrate. And then we do that year round for decades. And it's no wonder then that when we corral ourselves into not just one seasonal kind of eating, but also when we progressively industrialize and refine that and we take the nutrients out of that by making it progressively more um, processed food, um, it's no wonder then the chronic disease has skyrocketed over the last few decades. And that's clearly not the only factor, but it is a major factor. Yeah. So the, these diets might work at a particular part of the year. So they, that recommendation... They do, work they, at a, they do work at a particular time of the year. They should because they always have, but not forever. Yeah. So hence the plant-based vegan type diet, you know, by and large may work beautifully well for many of us in the summer, mm -hmm. but not so well Absolutely. in the winter. Absolutely. And if you look at the commonality, and this is kind of my you know, kind of decade plus of observing nutrition studies and kind of looking in a more cursory way at the anthropological evidence, what we see is that a wide range of societies in many different parts of the world um, have common allies. You alluded to the fact that they eat basically unprocessed foods in all sorts of different shapes and kinds. But um, so the anchor behavior within the food then is a consistent source of complete dietary protein, typically from meat or seafood or poultry or eggs, um, that then there is a natural oscillation between the fat and carbohydrate, the other the non-protein yeah. calories, but not because we're monitoring macronutrients, just because we're eating the food that, that's available in our region, in our locale. Um, so it happens very naturally. And this is what allows us in different parts of the world to do this local seasonal eating. Um, and very naturally, that will sync up our physiology 
the more we honor our local circadian rhythms as well, yeah. right? So for example, um, and I address this briefly in the book, there's a, a lot of research around intermittent fasting and compressed feeding windows and shortened feeding windows or time-restricted feeding. And um, like many of these other strategies, there's really good research that in the short term, these provoke really interesting and often beneficial physiological adaptations. They're good for people. These are real, this is good research. This is good for people. I will argue that that's not a biologically normal thing to do year round for decades on end, for years on end. It is, however, a normal thing to change. So the, the time-restricted feeding is effectively a winter kind of eating because yeah. um, what happens when you don't have electricity um, is you do most of your eating during the daylight hours because you can Right. Yeah. So for all of human history, we ate mostly during daylight hours. Well, in the wintertime, that means there's a lot fewer hours spent eating and a lot more time spent effectively fasting. So the intermittent fasting is another example of a program that is completely effective and completely appropriate at a certain time of year. But is but if we extrapolate that out and we say, oh, it was good for in this three-month study, we yeah. should do it year-round, we should just keep doing it forever, um, I'll argue with that as a, as a yeah. I don't see the solid rationale there. Just because it works in the short term does not actually mean it works in the long term. I see this with um, vegan and vegetarian um, proponents a lot as well. What we see are often people who are quite unhealthy making dedicated changes to their health and improving their health through the addition of a lot more whole plant foods in their diet. Things get better. That's a real thing. I'm not negating that. That's a real thing. What I often see is that when that same dietary approach, which is more of a summer type approach, gets stretched out for a year, two years, three years, four years, is that health status starts to decline. And, and um, one of the most common reasons for stopping being a vegan is a decline in health status. Well, I'll argue because you're off track because you're behaving like it's summer way beyond the summer. Yeah. It is, it's a paradigm shifting viewpoint. And, it's, but there's something about it that, that I think is bang on. Um, not something about it, but I think you are absolutely spot on. And it helps tie together a lot of different pieces that I think have been floating out there mm -hmm. for a little while. And it helps to explain why. <laughs> why different things work for different right. people and you know, at different times at different times and yeah. fundamentally we are opportunistic omnivores whose diet has always been dictated by geography right climate and i guess i would add now season mm -hmm. right that has always been the case yeah there is something about humanity i think there is something about the way we live these days that we think we have mastered the natural world right. and that we can override right. the natural Dominion world. over the earth. Yeah. And yeah. I think nature, Mother Nature somewhere is laughing her head off thinking, you guys know nothing. Right? You think you can do it better. You think you can do it better. <laughs> you know, you go to somewhere like Dubai, for example, I think they now seed rain clouds to provide rain. Yeah. You think We think we can control nature. And I think there's a consequence. And it's, you know, for me, for me, that was like, I think about this study, um, um, a good friend of mine, Mike Ash, sent me a couple of years ago that showed our microbiome. So for new listeners to the podcast, you know, these trillions of uh, bugs that live and reside inside mm -hmm. us and their genetic material. And we know that the health of these bugs and the relationship they have with each other is important for many different aspects of our health. That's super, that's super simplistic. I think accurate, but super simplistic. Yeah. But how our microbiome shifts throughout the seasons. Mm -hmm. if I, I'm gonna, you may have read the paper whilst researching 
uh, the book, but I'm going to dig it out tonight and send it to you. So I think it's super, yeah. super fascinating. It's like how, you know, even this shifts. So when we talk about good gut health habits, maybe right. there's good gut health habits in the winter versus right. the summer. There, but, there but is. All- I, will, I will unequivocally say there is. Because, and one of the things is that we know very clearly that the microbiome follows the dietary choices. Yeah. Right? So we should, I think it's, a, here's, the, here's the rational progression, which is um, your food should change seasonally because the food availability changes seasonally. So therefore, your microbiome will just follow the food and so it should change seasonally as well. Right? And, you know, yet another confounding factor in the study of the microbiome. And, you know, if we compare a diet in the winter and a diet in the summer that on a calorie for calorie and macronutrient for macronutrient basis looks identical, but if the food choices are different, or even if the food choices are the same, but the circadian rhythm is different, the context is completely different. And therefore, if you are living near the equator where you have less of a Mm -hmm. seasonal variation, then potentially you're eating a different diet or the optimal diet for you is different from someone living in the northern hemisphere it's less oscillatory there's there's a smaller yeah. amplitude of oscillation right because really what's what's important here is that the degree of oscillation in the length of day dictates thermal flux when the temperature is outside it dictates how significantly the food availability changes season to season so to your point if you're living in the equator there are fruits that fruit you know, at different times of the year, but often there's, there's, um, you know, high carbohydrate, high sugar fruit available nearly year round. And what we see there, um, is that, uh, some of these, uh, South Pacific islands that have either lots of fruit or, um, lots of starchy root vegetables like sweet potatoes, they are pretty well adapted to a relatively high carbohydrate diet because they have a more moderate space. And so they don't have the extremes of, very long days and very short days and things are much colder. And, um, but the concept there is that there's less oscillation, but they are honoring their local context and they are still honoring the rhythms that do exist. To add in another confounding factor, because the more you dive into this rabbit hole, it can start to get confusing potentially. We, we will sort of spin out again and give some practical takeaways to people. But if I think about myself and my ancestors who for many generations, as far as I know, we're in India. Mm-hmm. So I often wonder about, well, if, you know, should I be eating more like my ancestors and the, the foods that they ate and therefore presumably their microbiome and then the microbiome mm-hmm. I've inherited is more um, adapted to eating. But then you start to check in seasons and I think, mm-hmm. well, hold on a minute. I'm living in an environment uh, which is completely different from right. the environment in which my ancestors evolved. So obviously with plane travel now, we can supersede uh, and all this sort of mass emigration, we can supersede all these you know, natural processes where we mm-hmm. probably didn't go that far. You know, we certainly probably didn't you know, travel, you know, move like across continents right. in the same way that we can do now. And then you're just thinking, well, do I eat like my ancestors did or do I start eating like um, someone, you know, who who lives in the north of England should mm-hmm. live? And then when I get, so I always want to simplify. So for me, I'm thinking when things get too complicated, I start to think you missed something here. Mm-hmm. So now I'm thinking, well, the solution there is listen to your body. Absolutely. So I have a conceptual answer to your question as well. So the the the, the broad piece of it is 
our ancestors are yours and my ancestors, even though for we're from different parts of the world in the fairly recent past, we don't have to go far, very far back into human history and we have the same ancestors. So in terms of using evolutionary biology to inform what our food choices should be, they're actually more the same than they are different. And then they get a little bit diverse as humanity has spread around the world and different environments and different latitudes. Um, but they're still more the same than different with the commonality of you know, opportunistic omnivory, um, and we eat what's available in our local environment. So then the other piece of it is one of the most power, and I keep harping on this, but one of the most powerful drivers of the way our physiology, including our metabolism and digestion and processing of food is our circadian rhythm. And that's dictated by our local environment. Yeah. And our local environment includes the artificial light that we expose ourselves to all the time. So it's not just what goes on outside because that's all fine and good. Um, but we've really disrupted and overridden that, not just on the um, adding light to our days, um, you know, particularly after sunset when normally light would be, you know, be getting quite dim and actually getting completely dark. We have many hours of light, artificial light into those evenings. The other side of that is we have dramatically darkened our days by being inside. So, um, and I discuss this extensively in the book. Yeah, this is one of my favorite bits, actually. Cool. So, but but I talk about, you know, the way that we have inverted that situation. Um, and so not only are we exposing ourselves to the harmful effects of light at night, whether it is um, falling asleep with the television on, or it is being on our phones right before we go to sleep and having the um, melatonin blocking effects um, of that exposure to blue light, which is effectively telling our brains we should be alert because it's blue sky, it's bright and it's blue sky, so we should be alert and active. So there is this mismatch there as well. But then during the day, we the what feels like a bright supermarket or department store or office by light standards, when you measure the lux, the actual measurements of brightness, um, is very, very dark. Um, it's equivalent more to like dusk or twilight. Um, and so what we do is we have added light where it shouldn't be and we've taken away light where it should be. And so we have this real inversion and flattening there. So in much the same way we've done with everything else, we've taken what should be very dark to very bright and back down to very dark. And we've made it not so dark to not so bright to not so dark. And we have this really flattening of that os that oscillatory pattern to our own detriment. Yeah. I mean, in the book, you mentioned Linda Geddes and mm -hmm. her book, and she was actually at my house a couple of weeks ago. And nice. We went super deep on, you know, the book and her own experiments. And by the time this conversation comes out, that will have aired. Um, you know, I think about, do you follow the work of Dr. Jack Cruz? I do. Yeah, I find I find Jack's work super, super interesting. I don't claim to be an expert in that area. Mm -hmm. I don't claim to understand Nor every aspects of it but i do think there is something about light that again is a confounding factor in all these studies mm -hmm. something we have seriously not taken into account um you know we, we have studies showing that actually you mentioned daytime eating mm -hmm. and nighttime eating and i think I, I did quote this study in my first book i can't remember it now at the top of my head i think 30 percent of us have a genetic variant where in the presence of melatonin mm -hmm. we don't release insulin the same way right right so what does that mean when it is dark and we have melatonin levels, you know, colloquially the darkness hormone up, we're not going to process food in the same way. Mm -hmm. Like, so there's a lot of, and that's relevant, not just for, for nighttime eating. 
it's relevant for daytime eating because when we don't expose ourselves to enough bright light in the morning and during the day, which we definitely don't do, we don't have as much full suppression of melatonin even during the day. Yeah. So we're affecting our metabolism inappropriately in an imbalanced way almost at all times of day. Yeah, we flatten everything, haven't we? Right. We flatten the seasons, we flatten the light, so we're not getting enough light in the day and we're getting too, uh, we're not getting enough in the day and we're getting too much at night. Mm-hmm. So everything's become flat. Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, we talk about seasons and rhythms and I'm not proclaiming that either one of us are experts in this area, but I guess women, women have natural, I'm not gonna say seasonal changes, they have hormonal changes. Mm-hmm. They, they've got this cycle, the menstrual cycle, right? So it's fascinating that women are required to work in the same way mm-hmm. for the entire month. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm super conscious we are two men talking about <laughs> women's issues, right? Okay. But we're I, talking about human issues. We're talking about human issues. Yeah. Just saying, look, is it right that we expect everything to work the same way? Something I've been chatting to my wife about recently mm-hmm. is like, babe, you know, have you thought about the fact that because she started working out with a personal trainer mm-hmm. and doing strength training? Mm-hmm. And I was saying, look, you know, I think, is your PT aware that actually at different parts in a female's menstrual cycle, mm-hmm. there will be a different requirement mm-hmm. in terms of what you do? The answer is no, because no one knows that. Yeah, but right? it's quite obvious, right? On one level. On one level. But so is everything I've said here. Yeah, for sure. Level, when, when, once you, you know, know and, and I we, always we've say forgotten that everything. We've forgotten the yeah. basics. And so... And I know there are people out yeah. there talking about this, and I'd love to get some of them yeah. on the podcast at some point around the topic of female health, mm-hmm. because I think it's super interesting. Not that males don't also have rhythms and cycles, exactly. but I guess in terms of in terms of this fundamental core idea that you have that there are there are there are natural oscillations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've done it around the seasons, but it's it's everywhere you look. For sure. And that's the beautiful sure. thing about it. It's everywhere. Right. But we have numbed these seasons. And I guess what you're also putting out there, Dallas, is you're really talking about on, on, a, on a very deep level, fundamental societal change. What you really are putting forward is maybe school time should not be the same in the summer as in the winter. Maybe work time should be different in the summer and the winter. If there's any bosses out there, any employers who are listening to this and you have flexibility with your staff, Maybe start thinking about this and thinking if you want to get the most out of your staff and have a happy, productive workforce, maybe I would say read Dallas's book and start to actually um, think about, can you change the sort of the rhythm of your work to better suit human biology? Hospitals, like the more you think about this- It's everywhere. It's everywhere, right? What we expect of ourselves, even even the expectation we put on ourselves- Let's be kinder to ourselves and recognize, hey, you know what? It is winter. It is dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't have energy to go and work out. Mm-hmm. Fine. 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 Absolutely. You know, totally fine. And, and on the subject of working out, I know you have sort of touched on that, but if we just dive in in, in, in terms of movement and, you know, you, I love this. I've got so many of your quotes written down and genuinely you have such a gorgeous writing style um, that is such a joy to read. You say we exercise in highly contrived ways. What do you mean by that? Well, um, you know, this is this is where we'll compare and contrast the word movement and exercise, right? Because exercise we typically think of as um, very deliberate, uh, an attempt to move our bodies in a specific way for a specific outcome, right? It's a it's a con- it's by definition a contrived experience. Movement is just living, 
movement is being human in the world that's three-dimensional that requires us to move to get food and move to interact with other people and to explore our world and to get resources and to just be a human is a moving experience. So the exercise piece um, really is an attempt to kind of differentiate everyday, all-the-time movement, um, just moving through the world from the movement that we do for a specific you know, physiological adaptation or for weight loss or for muscle building or whatever. And that's not to say those things are not valuable because they are. Um, I think the concern that I have is that we miss out on the fact that exercise, or actually I'll say it this way, I think we make the mistake that exercise is all that matters. And so when we exercise, we do it either in, um, you know, using uh, a lot of machines with a fixed plane of movement, or we do highly repetitious movement, um, or we do a very um, prescribed type of movement for a certain time at a certain heart rate for a certain duration. And often we do that multiple days a week, sometimes for months or years on end with a lot of routine and movement. The healthiest kind of movement is three-dimensional and unpredictable because that's how the world works. So I would like to encourage people to introduce more general movement into their lives. And it can be small things like um, walking to the supermarket to get groceries if you live two kilometers away and putting food in bags or in a backpack and carrying it home, which is not something people would typically choose to do because it sounds like more work, right? And so much of our modern civilized world especially during the time of the transition of the industrial revolution was removing physical movement, removing actual work done, right? Calories expended in work. So I would like to encourage people to start doing more movement of all kinds, um, which in the reverse, this is comparing, because that'll feel like contrived, right? If I tell people to carry their groceries um, home from the supermarket, that in uh, in and of itself will feel contrived because the other context the norm is drive there park your car walk in the norm the norm is becoming pick up your phone go on the shopping app (laughs) right whilst watching tv and you 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 know we talk about us being uh hunter gatherers you you don't have to do anything you just have to answer the door right to get your food now right right? so that's the new norm did you see the um the animated film wally no it's a, it's a, I think it's a Pixar film. It's from uh, probably a decade or more ago, um, but it's a, it's a vision of the future. And one little part of it is that humans basically become these sedentary, useless blobs that have to be transported around because they don't even have the muscular structure to move themselves. And I'm like, man, that's kind of where we're headed, um, where everything, the effort has been removed from everything to the extent that. We have to convince ourselves to expend effort in the form of exercise instead of keeping things the way they've always been, which is doing movement, which partially reduces or eliminates the need for structured exercise. And you think about the way the world used to be where we would um, climb things, pull things, carry things. We would, you know, drag stuff. We would maybe wage war every, every now and then. But we would have these very kind of physically demanding tasks. We would certainly cover long peri- long distances on foot, either foraging or migrating or hunting. Particularly in the summer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we would do a lot less of that. So then the, the movement we would do in the winter, to piggyback on that, would be much shorter, much more intense, and smaller in total volume. 
So we start to see a natural expansion contra- contraction cycle in our movement across the course of a season as well. Yeah, so so to make it super clear for people, I guess to take the extremes of the heart of summer and the and the depths of winter, just to really try and make the points, are you saying that basically during the winter time when it's darker, we should be shorter types of movement, mm-hmm. more in, let's say potentially more intense kinds of movements Certainly. like for example, hits training, high-intensity mm-hmm. interval training, um, lifting things potentially mm-hmm. um, in very, very short bursts. Whereas in the summer, to contrast from that, and I, I get these are two extremes, mm-hmm. there's a lot of variation in between and we've got to figure it out for ourselves. But in the summer, we can do more of the kind of longer aerobic, sort mm-hmm. of less intense, but maybe longer duration activities. A hundred percent. And this, yeah. is, this is what's already built into athletic periodization because they found that it actually makes better athletes over time. Season over season over season, we have periods that are hypertrophy, they're building, right? They're yeah. muscle building, they are resistance training, so we're, we're putting on muscle mass, we're getting stronger, we're making ourselves more powerful. In the course of skeletal loading, we're increasing our bone density and bone strength, yeah. so it's a hypertrophic phase. We have phases that are more on the metabolic conditioning piece, and these get chunked out across the course of an athletic season, or an athletic gear um, because it works so we've already figured this out over many eons of humans doing competitive sport that uh, periodizing those things right we're talking about periodization right um so the same thing is true for general health yeah we should be periodizing it's um, such a it's you know i know i've said this but it's such a fundamentally simple complex at its it's a simple concepts right. at its core, isn't it? it? It's just the way things are. Yeah, I guess what is, not what is against your philosophy, what is against the practical application for lots of people is the way society is set up yeah. when this expectation that everything runs the same right. year in, year out. And I, I love this conversation around athletes because we can always learn so much from the top 1% because mm-hmm. they're always you know, pushing the envelope. They're always trying to figure stuff mm-hmm. out, see what works. You know, if you're a, in a top athletic team, this is worth a lot of money, potentially, sure. right? So you've got to figure this stuff out. What are these marginal gains you can make over your competitor? Mm-hmm. And, but it's that the take-home can be, can literally be applicable to all of us, you know, it's a bit cliche, but we are all athletes in our own life, yeah. fundamentally. Yeah. We want to be able to perform. We want to be able to do the things efficiently that we want to, that that, that bring us joy, that we need to do for our families. Mm-hmm. I know plenty of personal trainers listen to this podcast, and I'm hoping that they're going to take from this, hey, that is a super fascinating concept. Let me dive in deep. Let me understand it. Mm -hmm. And then think about, maybe that's why some of my clients really respond well to this in summer, Mm -hmm. but not so well in winter. And then I think there's going to be a lot of penny-dropping moments for people in a lot of different disciplines. Um, (laughs) I guess continuing... I've got so many wild thoughts going on in my head, <laughs> Dallas. So this is why I've gone to longer form conversations. It's hard to cram them into half an hour. But I guess the whole Thursday program, you can then make the case, may have a different impact, may, may tell people, may give people different results mm-hmm. and different learnings when applied in August mm-hmm. versus when applied in January. Mm-hmm. Because one of the key ideas is that through the elimination and systematic reintroduction of certain foods, you can learn to intuit what works well for you, which is going to vary time of year 
and year upon year. So in the same way that, um, you know, we know, and this is, I'll, I'll stretch it out to the lifetime timeline. Um, you know, from both being a physician and from being a parent that um, healthy children tolerate carbohydrate very well. Yeah. Well, that's because they're in the spring of their life where a lot of carbohydrate from whole foods is perfectly metabolically appropriate. Well, what we notice at the kind of towards the other end, we notice people who are older, who have perhaps um, some insulin resistance, who perhaps have less muscle mass, who perhaps have a more sedentary lifestyle. Um, people in the sort of fall going into winter of their lives often respond really, really well to carbohydrate restricted diets to improve that insulin sensitivity. And so what we're seeing here is effectively comparing a spring diet to a fall diet. So I'll argue that if people did Whole30s over decades, they would continue to find different intuitions within themselves over very long periods of time, perhaps trending towards more of a fall and winter type diet as they yeah. age. So this is the longest timeline. This is the whole lifetime yeah. arc of things. And, and what I love about that is that it makes this new book entirely consistent with your previous two books yeah it's they, not, they nest in they're just different timelines exactly and they do different things to different mm -hmm. people at different times and i guess on that what would you say is the commonest misconception about the whole 30 because i think oh. there's a lot out there there are a lot out there. Um, I think the commonest misconception, well, there's a couple different ones. I'll, I'll, hey, I'll, sure. Yeah, I'll give you a couple. Um, one is that um, it's sort of representative of an extremely restrictive and perhaps dysfunctional or what we call orthorexic way of eating. And, um, you know, I think I often hear that because the recommendations for the 30-day program are starkly different than conventional governmental dietary recommendations. Um, my kind of reply to that is that um, what we're really doing is we're encouraging people to learn about their own bodies through whole unprocessed nutrient-dense food. And I struggle to see dysfunction in a short-term, keyword, short-term experiment um, where people eat nothing but nutrient-dense unprocessed yeah. food. I don't, I don't see a problem there. The problem, and this is something that's just maybe the kind of second uh, misconception, is that this is, should become a lifestyle. Forever. And forever, right? I, I've seen hashtags on, um, on social media, you know, um, Whole365, or I've done my ninth Whole30. And that hurts my heart because what that shows me is that people are relying on a restrictive program that was designed to be restrictive just to provide parameters for this experiment, but they're relying on that restrictive program as a safe haven because they have not yet learned how to self-regulate and they have not actually internalized that intuition so that they can't, they're, they're trusting an external source, yeah. some parameters in a book somewhere that somebody wrote instead of internalizing that leadership and that intuition into themselves yeah. and really honoring that. So the, concern and the heartbreak for me is that um, people overuse that time after time after time, either for extremely long periods of time or, or you know, many, many times over and over. And if I see people who see someone who's done 12 whole 30s, I know they've missed the key idea. And it's not morally wrong to do, yeah. 
but it demonstrates that the key principle of learning about your body and then continuing to pay attention to your body outside of the whole 30 program to continue to learn that that piece got missed. Hey, I've seen incredible results from patients who have used the whole 30 uh, and other, you know, these kind of elimination type yeah. diets. I think it's super helpful for some people to do that, eliminate, and then it's that key, it's that reintroduction and mm-hmm. that learning piece that comes with that, that tuning into, oh, I didn't know I could feel this way. Right. Okay, what foods now make me fatigued and make me feel bad? And and I actually, I, I have a lot of sympathy for people who are doing multiple ones because I, I guess... Sorry, I just want to jump in and clarify. I don't mean multiples like two is a problem. Um, but it's, and, and each person is going to have to evaluate for themselves whether they are really understanding their bodies better through this or whether they are relying on an external authority. And I don't know that. I've seen that in the clients that I've worked with directly. Um, but, um, viewers here will have to figure that out for themselves if that applies to them. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you always look at these people and uh, anyone you're dealing dealing with with the utmost compassion. I was, I guess, simply trying to say that I think, and I see this pattern in other things uh, and and other behaviors with my patients, is that when people are repeatedly doing something a certain Mm -hmm. way, and, you know, if it makes them feel good, I get it. Like, they're like, nothing else is working, Right. this makes me feel good, mm-hmm. I don't care what anybody says, right. right? I feel good when I do this. Logic and, and uh, knowledge is going to do nothing at that point mm-hmm. because people want to feel good, right? Totally. So they're searching for something. I think what some people, um, I think what many people miss, um, and I think You've, I think, I think you've been ahead of your time, really, because even your first book, it starts with food. Mm-hmm. Beautifully written. It's not all about food. It starts with food. Now, right. I don't think it always starts with food. I think you know we can well, maybe. This is, well, this is the kind of tongue-in-cheek um, title of the chapter about circadian rhythms. Is the book is a reference to that, um, which is it starts with food, maybe. Yeah, and but then that echoes my own journey. Sure. So. It's, an, it's a constant evolution of mm-hmm. learning for all of us, for professionals in healthcare like we are, but also, you know, for, for the public and for people who are trying to learn about their bodies. Right. Um, Dallas, there's so much more we could talk about. Um, I think if people have, have had their appetite whetted enough, I seriously would recommend people check out this book. I, I really think it is a help book like no other that I've read. If we go back to that phrase that I quoted at the start of yours about this idea that you know, in the absence of things like alcohol, caffeine, sugar, you know, excessive artificial mm-hmm. light, we can start to tune into ourselves. What do you think you're using in your life currently that is mm. keeping you away from tuning in with your natural rhythms? That's a great question. I love the painfully personal questions. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, caffeine, for sure. It's interesting, actually. Um, I just said to my partner last week, um, and, and I'm a real coffee aficionado um I know. as you know <laughs> um you and i share that um and uh i was gonna i will say shed and i will expand on that in a minute oh good all right good so we're, <laughs> we are we are we're unknowingly on similar tracks i said i said to my partner last week uh i'm gonna take some time away from coffee and um that came out of just sort of a an intuition that as much as I love the, you know, energizing dopamine response to, to caffeine, um, it's not something that's deeply nourishing for me. And does it 
make me feel really good? Yes. Does it also um, artificially drive me to move fast in the world at a rate that is not sustainable for me? Also, yes. Um, so that's part of it. Um, I'm, I've spent the last couple years pretty aggressively um, addressing my self-medication with social media. Um, because for those of us who are kind of influencers and who have online presences, it's easy to justify needing to be connected and responsive on our social media accounts often. Um, but for me, and I know for a lot of colleagues that have had this conversation with, that um, tends to be a self-justification um, for the perpetual self-stimulation and the ego stroking of having people say you're doing amazing work in the world. Um, and just the raw neurochemical stimulation of things lighting up and colors and notifications and things coming to you. So even on the most kind of rudimentary biochemical level, um, there is stimulation yeah. there. Um, and, and so I'm working my way out of that to kind of deconstruct that. Um, and honestly, this is the kind of, this is getting perhaps even more personal, but I have over the past couple years really recognize the way that I have mismatched my own very deep um, intuitions to be relatively introverted, which I say to people and, you know, friends have known me for a long time. They go, you're a what? Um, but I've basically, um, I've self-medicated with moving fast in the world and travel and um, keep myself busy at conferences and doing podcast interviews and writing books and all kinds of stuff. But I've moved fast as a way to self-stimulate. And it's all very admirable and professional and success-oriented and defensible. Um, but it's not deeply nourishing for me. So at the soul level, um, I'm recalibrating a lot of things in my life and doing a lot of that slowing down that directional shift that I actually, I write about in the book, yeah. the, um, the recalibration that I think a lot of us feel the need for, but don't know, don't quite know how to do because we look around and yeah. everyone else is doing it the same way. And so the sensation there is for, for me, for a lot of my adult life is that same sensation of the like end of summer. I'm so tired. I can't wait for the day for the, for the days to start getting shorter again. And so that kind of endless chronic summer feeling of exhaustion and overstimulation was something that I've carried for a long time. And the recalibration and the sort of directional change into more of a slowing down, smaller, quieter, yeah. more autumn way of living feels really deeply good for me. Yeah, I appreciate sharing that. Um, it is It is amazing how... <laughs> parallels our mm. journeys are on different sides of the Atlantic. Um, you know, and on one level, it kind of makes me feel, it makes me feel good that there is some intuition in there where, you know, there was no reason for us to be drawn towards each other and right. develop such a deep friendship from just hanging out at a couple of conferences. But there was always something more, I think. Right. And I think I've seen that with other friends, like I spoke this morning with Drew on my podcast mm -hmm. and Again, Drew is also someone who I've always felt very, very connected yeah. to. And it's funny how as we get older and our, the journeys are not necessarily the same, but there's a similar pattern, mm -hmm. um, and, and which is really nice to know and actually helps, helps you trust your own intuition and go, yeah. actually, yeah, although I was using and still do a lot of behaviors to numb things, actually, there is something there that actually is drawn to, you Certainly. know, this, this strong human connection. Um you mentioned social media there, and I think 
if all of us are brutally honest with ourselves, hey, I'm sure this doesn't apply to everyone, but I think most people use social media at times as a distraction. And if we think we don't, I would say many of us are kidding ourselves. For sure. Well, I think that I think that. And I say that with compassion. For sure. I mean, I say that doing that myself. For sure. Right. I, exactly. Yeah. And I, I still have your uh, more social, less media sticker right there on my laptop. Oh, nice. Every day I open it, I see it, yeah. and it's a it's a lovely reminder. But but in terms of caffeine, mm-hmm. um, what's interesting for me is I I am surprised. I'm pleasantly surprised that you are going down this route <laughs> because much of our time together has been hunting out the most artisan sure. uh, coffee shop near where we are, missing, mm-hmm. uh, turning up late for, for various lectures <laughs> while we make sure we have our, you know, our perfectly mm-hmm. um, poured and, and, and brewed uh, coffee. The reason I say was is because I have, met- I have, I should say methodically, with varying degrees of success, mm-hmm. have gone down this path over the last few years. Mm-hmm. I have, at times of high stress, I have gone back to coffee. Mm-hmm. I've gone back to caffeine. Like this summer, um, so August 2019, um, when I was hoping to take a lot of it off and uh, relax with my family, I, I did manage to do a lot of that, but the, the, my third book really overran into the summer. And I would justify to myself to help get you through this, to complete right. it, you can go back to coffee. Right. And I know I'm kidding myself, really, because... We'll use the word justify. Yeah, right. and I, but I recognize now, I yeah. have the awareness now to recognize what yeah. I'm doing, and I have used it as a crutch. I yeah. have substituted in coffee for other things that I used to use, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that. Sure. It served a purpose, but now mm-hmm. I feel I've got to that point where, hey, I think I'm okay without using it. Nice. And I've gone through, like, in the last 12 months, I've probably seven to nine months of that, I was off coffee completely. I felt like a million dollars. I slept better. I was making more calmer, more rational decisions. I have flipped back recently. I've come off it again. Mm -hmm. We're in California, so I've... Two times this week, I've <laughs> used like, the bit. I feel like a confessional. I, I've used the bit to uh, help me with my jet lag. So I, yeah. I, and look, I actually don't mind that because what I'm doing is using it as the drug for which it is a drug. Right, totally. And so this week, to help me just uh, try and reset my circadian mm-hmm. rhythm a bit, I'm using it now and again in very small doses as a drug. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe there's nothing wrong it's with that. It's a tool. It's a tool. And yeah. I recognize that, but it's not the same thing at... Oh, I'm up. I need my coffee fix before I can function, mm-hmm. which was me for many, many years. And may as well. I, we can justify that it's, uh, hey, you know, we buy nice coffee and uh, <laughs> we, we, we brew it in a really nice right. way. And, you know, I get a, a single origin one. Again, I am not having a go yeah. at people who do that. I genuinely not. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. But I'll tell you what I've recognized for me and literally coming full circle to the start of this when you're talking about intuition that actually we know what the right thing is to do if we allow ourselves to feel it. I fundamentally know for me, by and large, if I'm in my home environment where life is busy, coffee keeps me in my head and makes me less grounded. And I've realized- That's such beautiful language. It's it's taken me a while to be able to articulate yeah. that, but it, it I don't make brilliant decisions. Yeah, it gives me that artificial energy. I want to make one observation about the pattern that both you and I are kind of, you know, over the last um, couple of years, kind of making some of these shifts independent of each other. 
Um, because I think it's interesting, you know, um, our entire civilization is built around um, perpetual expansion, dopamine, adrenaline, excitement, novelty, risk, reward, success, um, accumulation of resources. Um, but sort of so much of the uh, motivational underpinning there is dopamine. And of course, um, dopamine is uh, something that is linked right in with caffeine. And so we get this sort of motivation and excitement and pleasure response to it. And it's one of the reasons why we get addicted to it. Um, what I find interesting is that dopamine is sort of as a as a theme is a very kind of spring and summer kind of experience. And you and I are starting to lean towards the autumn of our lives and intuitively noticing that the chemical that induces the thematic neurotransmitter of the spring no longer feels most deeply connective and most right for us. And yeah. we just decided to lean away from that. Um, maybe that's total coincidence, but I have other friends who are doing the same thing not because they read my book and thought about it, but because they're starting to assess what feels deeply good for them, kind of capital G good. And the things that they did in their youth no longer feel good. Um, but there is, therein lies another mismatch between what society expects us to do, which is push harder, get the promotion, make more money, buy another house or boat or car or whatever. And so there is a divergence here um, and an opportunity for, I don't know, it's... Uh, I think it's an opportunity for refining ourselves and to use your word to ground ourselves in a place that feels much more deeply satisfying and connective and collaborative in the way that we behave. Um, because that's the fall type experience that most of us stuck in the chronic summer need and deeply yearn for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so much to reflect on there. Um, Dallas, look, how I like to end uh, a lot of these conversations is with this whole idea of feel better, live more. Mm. Um, the reason the podcast is called Feel Better, Live More is because when we feel better in ourselves, we can get more out of our lives. I think the philosophy you're proposing, the framework you're proposing to help people understand their lives and start to personalize their lives in a way that feels good to them is going to be super, super helpful for hundreds of thousands of people around the world. I, I really do think I that. hope that's true. I, 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 I literally am sure of it because it is one of the most paradigm shifting help books I've ever read. I do believe that. Thank I think you. the concepts are, have been missing. They really help tie things together. So what I'd love to do if you're open to this is right at the end of this podcast, I love to leave listeners with some actionable tips. Mm -hmm things that they can think about applying into their own life immediately to start improving the way that they feel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I appreciate you not had any warning on this, but I wonder if, you know, what's coming to mind? It could be things that you've already discussed, things that you haven't, yeah. but are there some simple, actionable things that people can think about doing in their own lives? Certainly. Um, I'm going to pull from the chapter in the book um, about anchors, um, because anchors are effectively those most basic, most consistent um, behaviors across all seasons and all years. Um, so then um, the anchor behavior around um, food would be include um, complete dietary protein at each meal. It's simple. It's simple. M my son often asks, you know, whether this food is, is, is healthy or not healthy. 
uh, or whether he can have this or kind of how we we're starting to do more cooking and he's really enjoying that. Wow. Um, and um, starting to kind of think about how to put meals together. I'm like, it's, it's meat and vegetables. I'm like, it's, it's, it's simple, you know? Um, and so the simpler we can make things. So um, in the food realm, um, you know, include complete dietary protein at each meal. Um, and I think the other kind of part of that there is um, eat during the daytime, eat during when it's light and really try to curtail um, the eating during darkness. And that's just a simple heuristic. Um, it's not a hard and fast rule. It's not something that people need to adhere to with tight parameters, um, but it's a simple concept, much like uh, choosing foods that are available locally and regionally. The more you do that, the more you shop at your um, local market or farmer's market and choose foods that are available locally, the healthier you're gonna be hands down so don't buy blueberries in winter that have right. been imported from kenya right I, and actually i wrote briefly about this in the um in the book um one of my earlier experiences intuitively around food was um the recognition that it felt really strange and not quite right to eat grapes imported from chile in january in new england it's i was like nope this doesn't feel right and that was over a decade ago um the other piece, um, the other kind of really actionable piece that I would encourage people to do, and we didn't talk about a great deal here, um, but there's a, I write extensively about uh, connection in the yeah. book and um, connection interpersonally, but connection intrapersonally, connection to and within yourself, um, connection to the place. Um, and that is not only the place where you live, but the place where you're from. So it's a sense of, um, of roots, of home, of where you're from, and then connection to a sense of purpose. And, um, you know, you mentioned and made a, a beautiful point about stillness and about slowing down and about listening to yourself. And the other pragmatic recommendation I would make there is if you don't already have a practice of stillness, institute one. And that can be something incredibly small and easy to squeeze into your life, such as a three or five minute meditation. It can be reading poetry. It can be going for a walk without a podcast or music yeah. or something on, um, but of stillness. And stillness doesn't have to be stationary. Stillness is a feeling. It's an attitude. It's a way of approaching, a way of moving through the world. So your stillness could be a walking meditation. Um, but that will open the door then to more self-awareness and more honoring, acknowledging, and valuing yourself, which then allows you to bring your best self forward into the world for family and colleagues and patients and everybody. Yeah. I mean, really, really great tips. Uh, a lot of food for thought for people. The one that's kind of, I, I like all, you know, I like all of them. The one that I really sort of think people will be able to super grab hold of is this whole idea of eat when it's light. Yeah. And when it's, it's such a, such a, it's so simple. Right. But it's something that we can all try and apply and think, oh, that's quite a nice thing to, mm -hmm. to try our best mm -hmm. to live life by. Um, Dallas, I know you spend a lot of time off social media, uh, but you are present there nonetheless. Mm -hmm. um, if people want to follow you and uh, keep up to date with your musings mm -hmm. and your ideas and philosophy, uh, where is the best place that they can connect with you? I'm most active on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram is at Dallas Hartwig. That's D-A-L-L-A-S-H-A-R-T-W-I-G. Um, I do a lot less on Facebook and Twitter, um, but Instagram is kind of my place. I also am kind of an amateur photographer, so I kind of like to kind of use that there as a way to kind of foist my stuff upon people um, who are interested.
Yeah, you, you, you're underplaying your photography skills there. Some of the beautiful photos on my grid are ones actually that Dallas has taken when I've been out on holiday with you. We've had so some good times. We have had some good times. Dallas, look, super appreciate you flying in to see me today, um, primarily so we can catch up, sure. but also I guess the podcast is catching up, right? We are going to go out for dinner tonight. I'm looking forward to catching up more. But thank you for coming. I very much at the bottom of my heart appreciate you making the effort to come here. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with my listeners. And I'm sure we will continue this conversation at some point in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That concludes today's episode of the Feel Better Live More podcast. What did you think? I'm a huge fan of Dallas's ideas and would highly recommend that you pick up a copy of his new book, the Four Seasons Solution. He really does shine a light on an area of health that very few people are talking about. And his writing style and the way he communicates his ideas is simply sublime. So on the back of that conversation, what changes do you think that you might want to implement into your own life? At the time that this podcast is being released, it is March in the UK. So spring is just around the corner. Do you feel as if you're ready to awaken from the dark winter months? Are you keen to get more active, get out more, walk more, get out in nature? Whatever your thoughts are, please do let Dallas and I know what you thought of our conversation today on social media. Dallas is most active on Instagram at Dallas Hartwick. And I, of course, am on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you go to the show notes section, on my website for this conversation. It is drchatterjee.com forward slash 102. On that page, we will link to Dallas's website, his social media handles, as well as links to the two studies mentioned and some articles on the subject of seasonal eating and the gut microbiome. So if you want to continue your learning now that the podcast is over, please do head over to drchatterjee.com forward slash 102. Now, as mentioned in the introduction to this podcast, we are living in incredibly challenging times. If you are self-isolating, one thing I would say that it is super important to look after your own well-being at the moment as much as you can. Now, my top tip would be to use in your own life the framework that I outlined in my last book, Feel Better in Five. I think it works great for individuals as well as for families. So the framework is as follows. Basically, I want you to do something each day that's going to help your mental health, physical health, and emotional health. And the way that breaks down is I want you to do five minutes on your mind each day, five minutes on your body, and five minutes on your heart. So mind is anything to do with your mental health. So that could be five minutes of journaling, breathing, five minutes of nature. Uh, It could even be doing something creative, what I call flow state. You could do some painting, drawing, something basically to get you out of your head and get you lost in a flow state. So think about what can you do either by yourself or with your family or your partner or your friends to help your mental health. So I hope those give you some ideas. Now, as well as for your mind, I also want you to think about doing something for at least five minutes a day for your body. That means get your body moving. That could be uh, five minutes of skipping, five minutes of dancing. It could be a five minute uh, high intensity interval workout, a five minute body weight workout but something, and this has really got to be a daily habit because the next few weeks, the coming months could be long. We could be isolated for long periods. So having that daily routine, I think is going to be really, really important. Now, as well as mind and body, there's a third component that I want you guys to think about doing each day. And I think this is the most important component, particularly 
in the current times in which we're living. And that's about what I call your heart health, which is about human connection. Many of us are going to feel scared, we're going to feel isolated, and connecting with other people is going to be really, really important. So you could, for five minutes a day, you could phone a friend each day. That is something I actually did this morning. I phoned one of my best mates from uni. He's a spinal surgeon in the south coast of England. And we just had a five-minute chat on the phone. And you know what? I felt a lot better about everything after having a bit of a, you know, fun chat with him, how things are going on in his hospital, comparing that to my work. So I would encourage you five minutes of, let's say, phoning a friend. It could be FaceTiming or Skyping an elderly uh, relative who you can't get over to see at the moment. It could be five minutes of writing things that you're grateful for in your life, a gratitude game. There are just so many different things that you can do, but I really hope you find that framework useful, mind, body, and heart. I really think it's going to be really, really useful over the coming weeks and months. It's something I am applying in my own life. It's something my family are as well, and it is really, really helping. Guys, if you know someone who you feel would benefit from the information in this podcast, but they don't listen to audio podcasts, you may well know now that I'm putting all of them out on YouTube. The best way to find my channel is to go to drchatterjee.com forward slash YouTube. And I really want to try and grow that channel because I really think people are looking for this content. They're looking for it in video form. If you guys could do me a favor and get onto that channel, press subscribe and like a few of the videos, it really helps with the algorithm. It really helps get the channel out there so that more people can benefit from listening to these conversations. If you do enjoy these weekly shows, please do consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. You can also help me spread the word by telling your friends and family about the show. I'm really hoping that over the coming weeks, many people who are spending time at home may find this conversation and my previous 101 conversations useful as a way of spending time thinking about things in a different way and also working out how best to look after their own health. A huge thank you to Vidata Chastity for producing this week's podcast and to Richard Hughes for audio engineering. That is it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week. Make sure you have pressed subscribe And I'll be back in one week's time with my latest conversation. Remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time.